2: The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week we're exploring the ins and outs of immigration, one of the most divisive topics at the top of the political agenda across Europe these days. Outbreaks of turmoil in the Middle East and North Africa are forcing millions out of their homes and towards the desired safe haven of Europe. As the numbers grow, so does resentment spreading across the continent as voters ask if their governments are in control. In the East, Hungary is putting the finishing touches to a wall it's built to keep migrants out, while pockets of protest are springing up elsewhere. Greece and Italy are struggling to cope with the number of migrants sailing towards their shores. Many feel that the problems have outgrown national policy solutions. So how can Europe best tackle the crisis on its own doorstep, and what impact will that have on the future of the European Union? With me to discuss that is Edward Carr, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and Oliver August, our Europe Editor. Oliver, the lead note in the Europe section this week, highlights the need for a common European approach to immigration, but why hasn't it happened so far?
0: Well, mostly because um, countries are reluctant to give up this particular bit of sovereignty, along with lots of other bits of sovereignty, and Europe finds itself in a halfway house, if you like, where the borders within countries in Europe have been to a large degree removed. But the policies that deal with some of the issues that arise from having a border have not been internationalized. So uh, somebody can arrive in, let's say, Poland and cross over into Germany quite easily. But the Legal repercussions of this do not fall onto Brussels, which instituted these rules.
2: Edward Carr, give us, if you can, an overview of the scale of this problem. What sort of numbers are we talking about and where are they concentrated?
1: Well, the the thing that's really changed is the uh, amount of turmoil in the countries surrounding Europe from North Africa through obviously to the Middle East where there's a civil war going on in Syria and even up into Ukraine. Uh, And so there's a, a large supply of displaced people numbering in the tens of millions. In Syria alone, there are sort of 9 million people internally displaced and let's say 3 or 4 million uh, refugees. And these people want to move. It's looking increasingly unlikely they can't go back home. They're uh, miserably stuck in, concentrated in uh, large refugee camps in the countries neighbouring. And they want to get to Europe where there's safety and a promise of a
2: decent way of life. So tell me if you could, what does that mean for the numbers that the European Union is having to deal with in concrete terms? So about
1: uh, 270,000 uh, illegal migrants have come to Europe so far this year. And that's more than all of 2014. A- and they get tend to get pinched at certain points, which makes it seem as if their numbers are very large. But really, actually, in a continent of, of 500 million people, the absolute numbers are not yet huge.
2: Oliver, I know you've worked a lot in Africa and the Middle East. What do you think the major factors are pushing people in this direction? Why are they not simply moving closer to home or perhaps trying to stay in their own country and stabilize that?
0: I would say that the the primary reason is, uh, and Syria is uh, one big exception here, I think, is that people have now the ability to cross into Europe. The desire has long been there and obviously Europe has long seen uh, migration from the Middle East and Africa. But um, until the authorities in Syria and other places, but especially in Libya, the, the, the authority of the governments that policed borders mostly disappeared in the last few years, it has become much easier to cross over. And I think it has taken smuggling groups several years to develop their business, if you like. But now it's, it's become well known in far away and by local standards, relatively affluent places like Senegal, where life is pretty good, but it could be better. And people have learned from friends who've taken this journey that for a few thousand dollars, and possibly risking your life, you can cross to Europe and there are people at the other end who will welcome them, a diaspora in which they can enter and which will help them to find work. Um, So I think it is, to my mind, it is not, and as I said, Syria is the exception, it is not that there are more factors pushing them towards Europe. It is that the And Syria, you mean
2: because the civil war the is civil war so is, extreme is, that is, clearly people are being pushed out of the, the country if they can get out?
0: Absolutely, yes.
2: Given the varied nature of the problem there that uh, Oliver outlined, uh, Ed, do you think that we've got anything like a coherent policy solution? Because it sounds like some people are simply taking a chance. Some people are desperate. How on earth do governments go about deciding who they should let in and who they don't want to let in?
1: I mean, the, the, the structure... Uh, the legal structure that sets out how to think about this is the 1951 UN Convention, which which divides migrant populations into two very distinct categories. The first are refugees, and countries that have signed up to this have a duty to take refugees wherever they land. So the refugees, in a sense, pick the country. Everybody else is an economic migrant, and there the country picks the migrant. So... Uh, the the difficulty now is that in this large number of people, those two populations are totally mixed up and confused and one pretends to be the other. Uh, and so this mechanism of sorting people into these two categories uh, has been sort of just isn't really up to the job of sorting these people out. And just one other thing on that, you end up with um, a certain sense of how many migrants a country is happy to take. Well, a large number of them fall under the refugee status and all of their families have a right to come in as well. That fills up quite a lot of the sort of quota, if you like, leaving a small number of very highly qualified people who come in as sort of you know, doctors and that kind of thing. And then there's this great mass of people in between who are slightly migrant, who've got a bad life, who could contribute something. And there's no kind of mechanism or apparatus to sort them out. And so it's a, it's a, it's a sort of dysfunctional regime.
0: And to add to that to make it even more complex you have to remind yourself that as part of their journey their status can change you move from a, a as a as a refugee from one country to another if you then move on to a third country are you still a refugee or have you since you were safe in country 2 by going to country three, do you become an economic migrant? And that's particularly
1: a problem in Europe because there's a, the agreement in Europe that you belong to the country where you first touched down, the Dublin Agreement. And that doesn't work, as Oliver was saying earlier, where you have the free movement of people across borders. So one of the things that Italy and, and Greece have done when they've got large numbers of people and they felt they've had to bear the whole burden is they haven't actually registered them or processed them in order that they send them north up to the countries because otherwise the countries were just saying it's your problem we haven't got to deal with it so it's sort of it's their leverage in policy terms on the rest of europe is to let people through against the rules which makes it everybody's problem.
2: Let's look at a solution that's been tried elsewhere. Some find it draconian. Uh, those behind it would say it's been rather effective, which is the idea that comes from Australia of basically trying to cut off that supply of making it less attractive to be a people smuggler because you simply you know, won't get your people to where you said you could get them to. And that is holding migrants in camps until you've kind of worked out these categories. Camps obviously have all sorts of of terrible kind of resonances. Nonetheless, I think European governments are going to start looking perhaps at policies that they may not have wanted to look at a few years ago. Oliver, what would you think about something that looked a bit like the Australian solution?
0: I think um, the word camp is not just problematic but toxic in uh, European recent political history. So I would assume that, that if you think of a camp with a fence around it, there will be a lot of countries that are not prepared to go in that direction. Um, Yet we see
2: a wall being built in Hungary.
0: Well, that's different. That would be a border fortification, I think. I mean, and, and Hungary may not be one of the countries so sensitive about this. But I think a, a, an equally likely strategy that Europe may follow from the Australian example may be the greater assertion of um, naval interdiction, where boats are prevented from possibly leaving territorial waters of the country where they come from. So if you catch a Libyan vessel on the edge of Libyan waters and force it to turn back, you would then not need to rescue them 200 miles out at sea and then your only possible destination would be Italy. I think the thing about Australia is that
1: it, it fits into that category of, on the um, 1951 convention. It tries to keep out all the refugees in order to make more room for the people it, it can choose. That works in Australia because, although it's very controversial, it works because Australia is a very long way away from everywhere else doesn't really work in Europe because Europe isn't a long way from everywhere else. That's the point. Europe's surrounded by places from which people could emigrate. I think the use of camps, if, if they're going to have them, is, however, to try and sort out the migrants you want and the migrants you're obliged to take because they're refugees outside Europe. That's much easier to do because one of the really big problems about European policy is returning people. The people you reject that don't get through the system – Europe finds it very, very hard to send them back anywhere. Partly it doesn't know where they come from. Partly countries don't want to take them. But if you sort them outside the zone, that's one way maybe of, of making the whole process more efficient. But don't underestimate how hard it is. These, I was you know, about
2: to back you back the, uh, the disagreeable question of you know, where you would nominate because this yeah. has always been the problem, isn't it? Where would be the place that is not in Europe but is stable enough for this to happen? Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, imagine
1: building a camp in Libya. It's a hard thing to do. This is hardly a stable country. Uh, It's a a tall order, but it's it's one proposal that people put forward.
2: Any pressure on governments in the Middle East and Africa, Oliver, that you think might have a chance of working?
0: There are a lot of pressures on governments in Middle East and Africa already. I mean, you can pay them possibly, but you'd have to pay them a lot. And these countries are You know, slowly and in a zigzag pattern, working towards a greater sense of public accountability. And while there may not be democracies, there is a a, a public to be taken into account for those governments too.
2: Edward Carr, at The Economist, we generally stand for liberal principles. We like the idea of freedom of movement, of people being able to to seek their futures and their fortunes around the world as freely as, as possible. And yet we have this tension in the story between the pressure on governments to be in control of this and what people want to do. They want to migrate. What will your approach be to that conundrum when you look at the leader coverage this week?
1: Well, I I think uh, this is a genuine problem. Uh, And it's a cultural problem as much as anything. The people arriving don't necessarily share European values of tolerance and and, and that can create ghettos of intolerance as we've seen in Sweden where in Malmo there's a lot of things going on. Uh, At the same time it can provoke a a reaction of intolerance among anti-immigrant parties. Now that's all bad and that needs managing. But I think we're feeling overburdened by this and we've whipped ourselves up into a moral panic where a few thousand people camped around a Calais seem like an invading horde. And in fact, we should think of immigration generally as an opportunity. These are people who want to get on. They can contribute something to society. And if they're assimilated and integrated, they can do an awful lot of good.
2: Edward Carr, Oliver August, thank you both very much. You've been listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. The <music> Economist